Before offering his life on the cross, Jesus knelt in intense prayer. He called to his Father and prayed that all of his followers would become one. Jesus said the result of this total unity would be that the world would know God sent Jesus to be the Lord of all men. Do you want the church to be one? It may seem impossible for all believers to have the same unity that Jesus had with his Father. But Jesus' prayer was not an idle wish. It was a clear vision of what was to come. Now, we've been discussing the individual conformity, where I as an individual strive, but not by force of will, but is the surrender and the desire of my heart to be conformed to Jesus Christ. So that on a one-to-one -one basis, or people seeing us as individuals can recognize the life of Jesus Christ within us. But there is a far larger and perhaps a much more important manifestation that the Lord wants in this world. He has established that which he has called the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the believers, his followers. And he's designated it by different names. Sometimes he calls his family, or it's called sometimes the building of God. Sometimes it is called the body of Christ. Now, just as a body must have no schism in it, lest it be diseased or hurt or that part of the body would die, so the body of Christ is to have no schism in it. And yet we see all over the world this fragmentation of the body of Christ, so that one part of the body will actually denounce another part of the body and say that we don't even receive you to be Christians at all. And I tell you that this is a great evil. And it's an evil that every Christian on the face of the earth, if they could see it for what it is, would turn away from whatever it is that keeps us separated from the rest of our brothers and sisters. Now sometimes, because of the understanding of ourselves and the understanding of others, a way cannot be found to actually bridge the gap at the moment. But it should be our heart's desire, just as we should desire to be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus, yet there may be things in us that do not let us be conformed at that moment, yet our whole desire should be utterly to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So likewise it is in the matter of the church. It is of such tremendous importance, we'll quote the scripture in just a moment as to why, tremendous importance that we should be utterly one. And what does the Bible say? I think we'll take a look at the 17th chapter of the book of John. The Lord Jesus here has just been speaking to his disciples of that day. Then in the 20th verse, he goes on to say, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Well, now that would be every believer today, of course, because we have believed on the Lord through the word that they spoke and it's been written down in God's holy Bible, and we have been converted as a result of that. The 21st verse, he said that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me. Now think of the utter union the absolute oneness, the manifested oneness. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe 
that thou hast sent me. Now the point being that when the church is manifesting that oneness, then the world will believe that God sent Jesus into the world. 22nd verse, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now God has given to Jesus all glory. And the Lord Jesus has given that glory to the church that it may be one. Verse 23, I and them, and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, how tremendously important that concept is, that not only I as an individual, because you see, if I forget this other part of the vision, and I concentrate merely on my personal conformity to Jesus, I can become very self-centered and very interned. And I'm concerned very greatly with my inner life, and that's all that I am concerned about. The rest of the world, the state of the church, what's going on in the earth, God's purpose and vision outside of my own individual conformity to Jesus, I have no interest in anything else. But God has designed that my interest shall be his interest, and his interests are that he shall be glorified, and that his vision shall be carried out, which is part of it, that the church shall be one, that the world will know that God sent Jesus into it. And the world will know that God loves the church even as it loves the Son. Now, you see, that's important to the heart of God. Now, if I know that's important to the heart of God, then it must become important to me, so important, that it takes an equal place with my individual conformity to Jesus. Now, it is not, well, first I'll work on my individual conformity to Jesus, and when that's complete, then I'll think about the church being one. No, no. It's one and the same time. I'm working on my individual conformity to Jesus, and at the same time I'm giving myself to the church itself coming together. Now, just as one is difficult, the other is difficult. But the principle is not how far along I am, but rather that I am giving myself to the vision and the purpose. It is God who will bring me to success in both of those endeavors. Now, the Bible speaks about he being the head of the body. We are his body. We are to express him. Now, when he was on the earth, his body was cohesive. His body was without schism. What he wanted it to do, it did do. But we're seeing today that what he wants his spiritual body to do, it has not done. He wants it to be one. He wants it to be a one mind. He wants it to be in one accord. He wants there to be a unity of the faith and a unity of the spirit. But we do not find those things taking place. So the world, by no means, is to the place where it's saying, yes, we believe that God sent Jesus into the world. They just simply are not saying that. As a matter of fact, well over half of the earth's population has not even yet heard the name of Jesus one time because the church has not done what it's been told to do. We have built little individual units. We're continuing to do that. Maybe for a time there's nothing else we can do than that. But we should always be striving and given to seeing the church come together in a total and complete unity. Now, if there were some way for me humanly, I as an individual, to bring about the unity of the church, I would, of course, do it. And I have tried it. 
And I think that men should continue trying it. I think it's a right thing because we never know when the life of God will break out of us in such a way that it will be accomplished. But on the other hand, I see here a very great danger. And the danger was expressed to Gideon when he was called upon by God to deliver the children of Israel from the bondage they were in. And at that point, he had 10,000 men who were not afraid of the battle. They were willing to go and to lay down their lives against a very great superior force, but they wanted to see deliverance. But God spoke to Gideon and said, the people you have with you are too many. Lest after winning this battle, you should say, I have delivered myself by my own hand. Now, I can see the very great danger, being that we are human, that we would be caught up with the idea, because we had produced church unity, that some marvelous thing had worked in us, and we might even decide it was some wonderful gift which we had developed ourselves. And we would actually try to claim credit and so fall into a very dangerous state with God. Now, God being our security is not going to allow that to happen. So I think this is something which God himself is going to bring to pass. Jesus' prayer was prayed. He always received those things from the Father which he asked because he always did those things which were pleasing. And this phenomenon is certainly going to take place. But I think God himself is going to do something on the earth and we see these times becoming extremely chaotic, and I think either persecution or some tumult in the earth or a economic crisis or a social crisis is going to take place, which in spite of our organizations, our adamant stands on many things, these will not be sustainable in times of extreme crisis. We're going to see how much we need each other. The Holy Spirit certainly is breaking down walls today, so that these things are not the vitally important thing in our minds they were, say, a few years ago. And I see that it, once again, it is the Holy Spirit working in all of our hearts, preparing ourselves for true unity. Now, I do not believe it will take the breakdown of organizations or a restructuring so it all comes under one single structure. do not see that necessary at all. But what I do see is something so charged with crisis perhaps or so charged with danger it will make each of us realize our desperate need of each other and when we really know we need one another we will come together these differences will not be important at all to us now many of the differences we have are important in our minds at this point but in a time of extreme crisis i believe they would not be so important at all and we'd find ways to bridge those gaps so I think the way to do it in terms of understanding with the human mind is not clear to us at all, just like many of the prophecies could not have been clear to the people making those prophecies or actually speaking them, or even the people a day before they happened could not possibly have known how it would take place. But it did take place. And then looking back in hindsight, we say, oh, that's how God did that. But looking at it, approaching it, no one could have had the slightest idea how those things would be fulfilled. And some of the prophecies of Scripture are so remarkable in that way. It just showed it was God and God alone who engineered the entire thing. 
And I think when this great coming together takes place that Jesus prayed for, it will be so dramatically remarkable that all we'll be able to say as his saints is this is the doing of God, and it's marvelous in our eyes. But though I'm saying from a understanding point of view, that is my human mind or your human mind understanding it, I don't understand it, that does not change God's requirement upon me to be praying for, yearning after, working toward the very thing that the Lord Jesus prayed for, yearns for, and is working after, and that is the total unity of the church. So my work then is to constantly reach out to my brethren everywhere and to say, you're my brother, and I love you, and I want to work with you. Now, if he rejects me and says, well, you're not my brother, and I don't want to work with you, that does not change the obligation on me to continue reaching out to him as much as I can. And I find as we do this, one or another will turn around finally and say, I see what you're saying. You're not trying to bring me under one organization or force me into a different kind of structure. You're only reaching out to me in love, and that I can do with you. And so in that sense, we join. I believe in time the purpose and vision will become very clear to the entire church, and that purpose will be everywhere the same, and that vision will be everywhere the same, and this will help us to bring about the unity of the Spirit to maintain it. And finally, as God is reestablishing his offices in the church, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and so forth, restructuring the local bodies as well along scriptural lines, I think of a certainty that we're going to come to a unity of the faith also. Now, if that means also total doctrinal unity, I'm not sure about that, because I don't, I don't know if that was true even in the early church, that the apostles spoke on every possible thing that could be spoken on in Scripture. But it will mean in essentials we will have a unity of the faith and we can walk in that with freedom. The essentials that would bring about the unity would be that common purpose, because if we truly are given to the glory of God and understanding how to bring about that glory by the fulfilling of the vision, then many of the things that we consider so important right now, and those happen to be the things which are keeping us apart, we would lay those things aside because we would see they do not fit in either to the vision or any command that God gave us, or they certainly contribute in no way to the glory of God. They only contribute to the sustaining of our own local structures, and it's almost like a defensive mechanism. But one day we will realize that we do not have to defend the mechanism, that God himself is the defender of his church, that Christ established his church, and he will keep it. And he's kept it for 2,000 years in spite of anything that man has been able to do, outside forces trying to destroy the saints, or inside internal strife. And yet the church is still here, still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's because God is faithful, and God has established it. We would have destroyed it long ago. And I think if we understand that, that those essentials are that we truly have that common purpose and vision, that many of these non-essentials would be quickly laid aside and recognized for what they really are. And we must not become discouraged at this terrible fragmentation we see of the church that it is God who finally will bring it together, but that what happens in us when we give ourselves to the vision, even though we do not see it completed in our lifetime. For instance, another aspect of the vision is the preaching of the gospel in all the world. 
Well, I may not see that completed in my lifetime, though I believe I truly will. But even though I did not, I have absolute assurance that it will be done. But my work is to give myself to it. And in giving myself to it, those profound and powerful changes take place in me so that that conformity to the image of Christ, my heart unity with all the brethren, my desire constantly keeping me outturned toward God and toward man, that produces in me that heart attitude which fulfills the purpose that I truly have lived and died for the glory of God. Now, I desire to see the church be one, and I believe that I will see it in my lifetime. The individual saint has the greatest possible importance in this matter, far greater in reality than the leadership. Because the leadership, the Bible makes very clear, is only there for the sake of those saints. So everything that God says is for the sake of the saints and not for the sake of the leadership. He's not really speaking then just to the leadership to do something. Paul makes this very clear. He says, Apollos, Cephas, myself, he says, life, death, that all are yours. In other words, the only reason for existence for leadership or anything else is for the sake of those saints. Now, what is the saint but the priest of the Most High God? And it's that priestly function that the saint carries on. That's the real linking. And here, one saint can link with another saint of another structured organization. But in linking with him, and both of them coming as priests of the Most High God, and offering praise and prayer that God's will will be carried out on the earth and his purpose completed, this is the true linking that must take place. And that can actually be a far more valid happening than waiting for the leadership to get together. The leadership, many times the difficulties of coming together is exactly in the heart of the leadership. They're afraid that something will happen and they just hold back a great deal. But the saints, on the other hand, are perfectly willing, unless they receive a specific command not to, are perfectly willing to join with another saint. They simply realize the heart of God is there, and they're willing to get together for prayer and fasting and to seek God together and to praise God together and to go to meetings together. They're willing to do that. And I see that one of the great things that's going to take place throughout the earth when these upheavals come, we're going to find the saints are very quickly able to relate to each other in a common priesthood of God, calling to God for deliverance, for safety, for protection, for guidance, for courage. And I believe the church will come together on the basis of the individual saints relating to each other. Certainly the leadership will also come together. But the saints have a profoundly important stake in practicing these very things that we've talked about. So the best thing that we can do is to take these principles, declare them, and build as many what I call practical unities as possible. This is linking to people that are given to God's purpose and vision that truly in their hearts want to be joined to all saints everywhere. Do not desire in any way to be separated or to form some little group all of their own where they think they're exclusively the holders of God's truth or they alone know the right way. They realize they belong to the whole body and everyone who knows Jesus is a part of that body equally with them. And if they have some revelation given to them by God, it's not something to make them proud, but rather to be thankful and simply willing to share it with everyone that will hear. And so they need to give it in meekness to those that are opposing themselves or don't see it, 
even to those who reject them, they keep on reaching out. Now, as we work in these practical unities, little small samples of what it could be like, if that practical unit is functioning powerfully, more and more saints from different places look at it and say, we could be like that too. What is it that could make us like that? And then they open their hearts up to receive, and one practical unity finally in God will join with another and yet another and yet another until finally I believe this will take place all over the world. Now, I believe it will take place coincidentally with the deterioration of society and every other form of life on this earth. It's going to bring us into the knowledge that we need each other desperately. The church, corporately together, is the body of Christ. Just as he had a body when he was on the earth here 2,000 years ago, and through that body he expressed himself and really expressed the life of the Father in him, so now he has a body on the earth. That body is his church. But in its present schismatic state, it is not expressing the life of Jesus, but individual life of the believers all doing what they think are the right thing. And a few having some deeper understanding, but most of us don't have very much understanding. We're just coming now to see that the body must come together and be one. We're beginning to give our hearts to it. And that's why these teachings are going forth, that every person who hears them can give themselves to that, even though they don't understand what that means or how it can come about, but give themselves to that, and the result will be a much more rapid progress than we've seen in the past. So now then, let's look at this concept of going into all the world. Because it is so physical in its nature, we are able not to understand it, because it, once again, is every bit as profound as being conformed to the image of Jesus or the church being one. It's also just as impossible to humanly fulfill. How are we going to break through the cultural barriers? How are we going to break through the language barriers? How are we possibly going to preach the gospel to every creature and publish it in every nation and establish the church and make disciples. How are we going to do this? Well, here again, the mind does a strange trick on itself. It does not grasp the greatness of what God has just said. It reduces it to something it can understand. And it says, if I put a ministry in a certain place and I multiply that by 50, I'm doing my share. There is no share in this. We're all to be committed to the total vision, just as we're to be committed to the total purpose. Now, if I see that I'm to be committed to the total vision, that I am to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, I realize immediately that I cannot do this of myself. It must be holy God who empowers me, grants me gifts and powers and abilities I do not have naturally. No human wisdom can do it. No human intellect can do it. No human muscle power or might, will, nothing can accomplish it. It takes something from God. And then I begin to go back to the Word of God and say, what does it take? And I begin to see, of course, that it takes the endowment of power. The Holy Spirit cannot do this humanly. It's impossible. I begin to see from the Word of God that it takes God confirming the Word with signs following. There must be healings and miracles and signs and wonders which we are not seeing today, because people are still caught up in the idea that 
it's possible to do it through organizational skill and monetary ledger domain. But none of these things or anything that the human comes up with will ever fulfill even that little facet of the vision going into all the world. Will not fulfill the church becoming one. Will not fulfill us being conformed to the image of Jesus. We can never find a way to humanly glorify God that will be acceptable to him. This must be always a revelation from God, a change in our own hearts that make us conformable to what God wants done, and then God must supply us with the power, the grace, the tools, and prepare the hearts of the people for our coming. He must stir up the whole church because it will take the whole church to do that. Now, that being the case, once again we're forced to fall back on the interchange that makes me committed to that aspect of the vision, and not committed to that aspect of the vision above or less than any other aspect of the vision. Each of these things require that I be committed to every aspect of the vision and the purpose equally. One and the same time, I am conforming myself by his grace to the image of Jesus. I have given myself wholly to the church being one and coming together. And at the same time, while that is working in me and the rest of the church, the church is moving out into all the world to proclaim the good news to every lost person. But I say once again, human understanding enters into this, and I lay aside being conformed to the image of Jesus, especially in this one area. I lay aside the church coming together and being one, and my whole idea is to raise up an evangelistic organization. And if we get caught up in that trap, and many hundreds and thousands of great men of God down through the ages have been caught up in that trap and finally only exhausted themselves, worn themselves out, and the people that were with them, tired, weary, they did not see the thing that they desired to see because they got caught up in one aspect of the vision, tried to make it the whole vision, tried to do it with human power, it all failed. Now it must be God and God alone who supplies what we need. We need to supply the surrender of our will to his purpose and his vision. I think a second point that would be important to make here is to dispel, just as we had to dispel what will bring about the unity of the church. question was asked, will it be when the leadership comes together? Well, of course, it's important that the leadership come together. But it truly will be the saints of God when they grasp fully the aspects of the vision and they begin to move as a whole body of believers that these things will really take place. Now, the same thing is true in the preaching of the gospel. We have spent much time, far too much time, training leadership to simply be leadership. And that leadership has primarily been job-oriented, primarily been structure-oriented, and they have not passed on to the people the truth about the priesthood of the believer. Or if they have done it, it has been an inactive concept, merely an abstraction, instead of showing the believer how to be an active priest in the household of God, how to personally carry out the vision himself, they have merely said to the believer, you are a priest in the household of God. But now that is not enough. We must take the believer by the hand and show him how to actively carry out that priesthood. So everyone, if we can understand it, being called to be a priest in the household of God, 
is called to lead the whole universe in worship toward God. And that's what the going into all the world is all about. That's what telling the good news is all about. It's not evangelizing, but rather it's to go and to declare the good news. See, the problem will never be getting people saved. That will take place once the witness has taken place. Once the good news is really distributed, salvation will take place. The problem is not in the power of the preaching or the style of the preaching, but in the fact that not enough preaching is being done. It's being done by a few highly trained professionals and occasionally an enthusiastic a non-trained layman. But what it has to come to is the entire body of Christ understands they are called to declare in whatever way they can. Now, for some, it would be street preaching. For others, it would be door-to-door. Others, it would be they would meet people on the job or invite people into their homes or go over to the friends that they met in various situations. But they would constantly be thinking. There would never be a time that their minds would be turned away from the idea that they are representing the Lord Jesus. They are an ambassador for Christ. So they're constantly thinking, I must be conformed to Jesus. They would constantly be thinking because they're going to be asked this question. Where do you stand in relationship to other believers in the Lord? Where do you stand in relationship to other Christians? Well, if we forget division and we begin to denounce those others, well, this one is no good and that one is no good and someone else is no good, then we are in danger of breaking down that united front that we need to convince the world that God did send Jesus into the world. And the third thing, if we're in a person's home or they're in our home, and we really understand the power of the good news, we'll find ways to talk about not prophetic interpretations or our peculiar doctrinal ideas, but we'll find time to talk about the majesty and the beauty and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ and what the Eternal Father has done for us by sending Jesus into the world. And that is the thing that will cause men and women to be converted to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to preach the good news. And I say once again, it must be so in our mind, this concept of purpose and vision, that no matter where we go, we're constantly thinking. If we're in the presence of an unsaved person or we're in the presence of a place where opportunity is presenting itself, our minds are dwelling on how may the purpose and the vision be expressed in this place. And we're looking to God for practical ways to express that purpose and vision. And then I think... Uh, last point that we need to make here is that we need to know that it is a privilege to be a part of God's family. It is not the other way around, that it's God's privilege to have us. Certainly God is delighted. He's overwhelmed with joy because he's a God of love. But the privilege is all on our part. And when he gives us the unspeakable and glorious wonderful honor to be able to spread his story and his life and his image to the whole world. That's something that every saint of God should be willing to do at his cost. If he has to go out and work 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day to earn enough money to be able to spread this gospel, to be able to preach the gospel, if he has to pay for a church building himself, or pay for buses, or pay for literature, or pay for whatever he has to do. So great is the privilege 
that every man that's in God's army ought to be willing to pay for the bullets and the gun that he needs to preach this gospel. Because we're bringing not death, we're bringing life to people. And I think if we can understand that and say, well, I just don't have time to preach the gospel because I'm too busy earning a living, so I hire a professional to do it. And then many times the professional says, I'm not getting enough money, so I have to go out and work part-time, and I don't have time to do it. But every one of us ought to realize, no matter what kind of stress or strain we're under, that we ought to be willing to make that effort to preach this wonderful good news. And if we do that, this good news would be preached in a hurry. We need to realize operating against that vision is a constant warfare. Just like operating against the purpose of God is a constant warfare. Satan is continually attempting to make us forget the purpose of giving glory to God, and we constantly want to fall back into making ourselves the purpose and giving glory to ourselves. So likewise with the vision. Satan is constantly warring against our mind, and this whole world still laying in the lap of the wicked one, with the exception of those people who have escaped it through God's grace, that that warfare is continually waged against us to make us forget the vision. See, now we can have some aspect of the vision. If we want to develop a church that is totally dedicated to being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and that's our whole work, Satan will not war too much against that kind of a mentality, because it will never carry out the purpose and the vision. It will become very interned. There will be much talk about deeper teaching. There will be much talk about heart searching or getting into somebody's heart. There will be much talk about analyzation of my motives and my ideas and why I do things. But it will get more and more interned. We'll be less and less concerned with people on the outside because we'll be more and more removed from them. We will consider ourselves so deep in the things of the Lord that our language will become even strange. And if an unsaved person should come in, we'll feel so uncomfortable, we'll really be glad when they're gone from us because we want to get on with the deeper teaching. The other aspect of it is if we're constantly given over to the church coming together, just one aspect or the other, the church coming together, we become the Mr. Ecumenical. We're just rushing around trying to get people to agree Okay, now we're going to merge. We're going to be one. We're going to get together. We're going to cooperate in some particular way. But that's not what we're speaking about. But even if that could take place, it still would not fulfill the vision. It would be human instrumentality producing these things, and we would again as humans be claiming credit for doing it. And we've already discussed about the single aspect of going into all the world. We develop our programs. And these may have some limited value in that people do get saved. Who can deny that if anyone gets saved at all, that's a good thing? But I tell you something, because we are willing to settle for something that is less, and we do not give ourselves wholly to pursuing the total, we never really come to that place where the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the glory of God is fully manifested among us. And this gospel really gets preached in all the world. We're always settling for limited objectives, fragmented churches, and partial commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that war goes on, and it's always to reduce us from that glorious purpose and glorious vision to what we call a survival vision, something that will make me happy, something that will produce peace 
within my own heart. Something that I can understand, where the hassles are removed and I'm accepted and my status situation in the world rises and people love me and I'm very content with this life and I see visions of coming to old age with adequate financial security and dying in a good old age without any pain of any kind, my children all around me, and then I float off into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we look into the scriptures, we see whereas some people seem to be financially blessed during much of their life, and so we know that is a possibility, but it wasn't something they aimed at. It was something they gave themselves to God, and because of the principles of Scripture, they prospered, and they prospered, and they knew how to use their prosperity for the glory of God. But riches was not their aim. The glory of God was their aim. We're warned about the danger of those who will be rich. They did not aim at these things, nor did they particularly aim that they would live to a ripe old age. They aimed at the glory of God. Now, if they survived all of the attacks that were made on their life to a good old age, they gave all the glory to God. But if they faced martyrdom, the Bible clearly speaks about them, says they knew they had attained to a better resurrection. And so they accepted these things as right and good. They were not afraid of them. But in our present mentality, and the mentality that's existed with Satan warring on our minds, there's always the attempt to reduce God's holy vision to a simple survival vision. A happy, clean life, a good home, that will show God to the community, or a full, prosperous church. There's nothing wrong with a full, prosperous church, unless that's our goal. But that's not the goal God gave us. That's a byproduct. If we truly are preaching the gospel the way God told us to preach it into all the world, and we're reaching out beyond ourselves, a great gospel statesman years ago said, the light that shines brightest at home also happens to be the light that shines furthest away. For if the light is bright enough to reach the far-off distances, that's the brightest light at home. But many times we shine the gospel light only on the home front, and it's not bright enough to reach any place beyond. We don't fulfill God's purpose and vision. And the result is we strive and we struggle and we work to fill our little churches with 50 or 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 people, forgetting that in this world are nearly well over now, four billion people, over half of which have never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See what a tragedy this is to let God's vision sink back to our little survival vision. The church to remain fragmented, our lives to be fragmented when God wants whole men and whole women, nothing less than that perfection which God speaks about should be our goal. And we simply cannot drop back to that survival vision. Now, even some of the things that seem very, very right that we should speak about, like the deeper walk, or loving one another, or community, or deep relationships in the family, or save souls from an angry God, all of the various things that our human mind dropped back that sound so good, all that can be said about every one of them, they are not what God told us to do. And that alone is enough. There's no need to go into long explanations. We can show why each one is totally self-centered, why each one is totally survival in its nature. But the point is that God told us that's not the aim, and that must be enough. Now, if we accept any concept other 
than God's purpose and God's vision the way he speaks about it. We must sink to something less. Now, interestingly enough, let's say my vision should be, and this sounds like a very logical, very good thing. If I were to say, well, I can't get people saved unless I get myself really saved and together. Well, that sounds very logical, but of course God never sent us to get people saved in the first place. He sent us to declare the good news. He sent us to be committed to seeing the church one. He sent us to be committed to being conformed to his image. But let's take the point of view of getting people saved. I can't get people saved unless I get myself together, unless I get my family together, unless I get my church together. Wherever we want to fasten a less than God's total vision. But the next thing we'll find out striving to get our church together, we can't get the church together. Confusion goes on, people are all upset, they don't get on, they begin, there's strife and schism among them and people are leaving and so forth. We say, oh, how can I get my church together until I get my family together? And so the vision shrinks further to just our family. Then it's myself, my wife, my children, but then the next thing I find out, my wife really isn't listening to me like I wish she would. There's some areas she does, but then parts of the time she says, I just can't submit to my husband. And, or if it's the wife's point of view, the husband says, I don't know, I'm bitter at my wife because she did these things and I'm not really with her. And pretty soon we come to the idea, how can I get my family together until I get myself together? And ultimately we must back down to once again just thinking of me as the center of all existence. And then I want everyone, I want my wife, I want my children, I want the church, I want the ministers to constantly come over and help me get it together. And so instead of God being the center of my life, I become the center of the whole universe again. Now you see, whenever we allow the vision in us or the purpose to shrink one iota from that high and holy calling, we cannot help but sink down, 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 until once again total selfishness is the rule of our life. But it's far worse as a Christian, far worse as a Christian, because now we have it all couched in beautiful religious terms, and we don't even know it's wickedness anymore. Now we must never leave that purpose or vision, not for a moment. The warfare that's constantly on us, we need to constantly cast ourselves on God's mercy and God's grace to hold us steady to keep that purpose and vision alive. And I tell you something over the years. I've learned one thing about God's vision or any vision that he gives you. You see, we'll talk at some point about a unique personal vision. In other words, how I physically fit into that overall vision what I can physically do. God will finally reveal to me the physical steps I must take to do my part of painting this grand and glorious picture that God is producing in the world. But I've learned one thing about a vision, whether it be the grand sweep of God's eternal vision, or whether it be the particular aspect that I can perform, in the beginning, I must feed that vision. It comes to me almost like a glimmering and I see it, and I see the beauty of it, and I behold it, and I want it, I desire it, and I reach out after it. But my mind is so filled with other things. My soul is so unruly. There are so many desires in the world that are pulling and tugging at each one of us to follow after those things. 
that if I'm not very careful with that high and holy thing that God has given me, it'll slip away, and it's lost in all the babble of the noises that are in my head. We need to be like the man who found in a field one pearl of great price, and then he went and sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field to obtain that one pearl of great price. Now this purpose and vision that I speak of is like that pearl of great price. Everything you have, sell it, give it up, get rid of it, that you may invest the whole thing in that field that has this pearl of great price. And in so doing, you'll find out that everything else will balance out in your life. But in the beginning, you have to truly feed that, like the man had to feed all of his life savings, everything he had, he had to feed it into that field. Now, once he fed that vision, it came back to him as this pearl of great price and was more than he needed to cover every aspect that he could properly have in his life. That's what we need. But without me being constantly reminded, stirred up, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit, that's also the work of the eldership, that's the work of leadership. That's the work of every saint to constantly come together and talk about the things of God and talk about the purpose and vision. But I must be continually reminding myself, stirring up the gift that is within me. For if I don't do that, that vision will dull, and then one day it'll slip away completely. And I tell you something, I've looked at the tragedies over the years of people that have let that vision slip away and a survival vision take its place, how they've gone away from that active relationship with Jesus Christ. They've been content with lesser things. They begin to talk then about not reaching out for the Lord or reaching out after the Lord or reaching out into the Lord. That no longer is their talk. They begin talking about the things of this world because they have nothing left. You see, once that purpose and vision is gone, Nothing is left but a survival vision, and we fall back into it. There are times when the Holy Spirit himself, in his balancing work, constantly is pointing out, going around and round and round these various aspects, because at any point, we can only concentrate our minds for a moment. We have a very short attention span in any one particular thing, and so he calls our attention to this, and then he calls our attention to that. But in fact, we are not leaving the other's to take care of one, say, well, the others are not important. See, it's what happens when we say, the others are not important now. I will give myself to this one. You're not actually saying that. You're saying he's drawing your attention to it, and there's something you have to deal with there. Then you come back to this, and you deal with this, and actually it's working totally in your life. But that's just the natural and the spiritual process that we can only concentrate for a moment on one thing. We handle that and immediately the Spirit then calls us to the next aspect. And so actually we're totally balanced. It's that tension working on us at all times that holds us in the middle. But it's when we willingly say, I will lay aside this and I will give myself only to this. See, it's our decision to zero in on something and leave the others aside that is so wrong. We can remember that we're always trying to understand how to do it. Well, that's all right if we realize that it takes a revelation to understand it, and we submit ourselves to that. But actually what happens, we become discouraged at waiting for God to speak 
and we want to create something out of our minds which we can understand. Well, obviously, we can never create anything more than our human minds because we're literally creating it out of our minds. It's not God's mind revealed to us. It's me just reshuffling various techniques and methods that I already know that I've learned naturally, and I reshuffle them into a program, and I say, aha, this now I understand, and this I feel good with. And then we explain that to people, and they say, oh, yes, we understand that, and we can do that. See, it brings you right back to that human effort again, and you feel very comfortable with that. And especially if you can couch it in religious terms, then you really feel good with it, because you feel, well, surely this is the hand of God, and he's revealed this to us. But you can always test it against the purpose and the vision, and we see immediately how far short that really is from that purpose and vision. We can test any proposition against that. Is it really designed to carry out the purpose and vision? In most cases, it is not. Unless it's been a revelation of God, it's not at all. It's designed to carry out some very fragmented little piece that will satisfy our desire for accomplishment. I think those early apostles, Paul was able to say within himself that he had preached the gospel to every creature under heaven whereunto he was sent as a witness and he had not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now think of the testimony he had within himself. And the Bible says, 11th chapter of Hebrews, all of those men of God, those great warriors and those women of God, had this testimony before that they had pleased God, and they had it by faith. See, they would not settle for a lesser vision, they saw the promises afar off, they were persuaded of them, they embraced them, they moved toward them, and they would settle for nothing less, for they wanted a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. And they could have easily settled for something less. Now, they never saw the city in their lifetime, and it says they never even received the fulfillment of the promises. But they will, and that was enough for them. They knew that God was true, and that's what we said earlier. I believe I'll see in my lifetime all of these things take place, but it does not matter whether I see it or not, or whether you see it or not. What matters is that God stated it, and I'm to give myself to it, and you're to give yourself to it. And the result will be, it will take place, and God will be glorified in it. This tape concludes the series on God's purpose and vision.